Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about originating ideas. You want to be starting something? Well, I don't mind if I do. You can hear inappropriate conversations on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and beyond. On demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. I feel like the topic that I'm hitting this week is necessary. That's actually a bit of a pun. It'll make sense later in the show, but it's going to be a serious, inappropriate conversation, and I need to do it sort of as a prerequisite to pave the way for what I want to talk about next week, because I'm going to go in a bit of a nostalgic direction in a week, and I think I can do so actually by starting now and referring to some things that I've put online before. In some ways, this is looking back at you know, a podcast or a group of podcasts that I don't think I give enough shout outs to the very first network of podcasts that I mentioned on inappropriate conversations years ago was simply syndicated. And I mentioned in inappropriate conversations, 100 talking about the evolution of this show that in many ways, inappropriate conversations doesn't exist today. If it weren't for simply syndicated, and I'd like to get even more specific about that and say, it isn't just an appearance on the Admiral's table that, again, is specifically mentioned and even you know cited with a clip in IC number 100, but it's also the forum that led me to even know who Starbase 66 was to begin with. I had encountered people like Rick and Karen and Kennedy from that show online in a forum. And again, as I think I've said before, the first forum that I ever participated in, in any sort of you know active way, anything any role other than a lurker, I tend to use the internet. And I've noticed this more and more in myself, not to do what I would call comprehensive reading, cover to cover reading, but to come in and to seek data to almost, it's almost like I'm a researcher at all times. And any experience that I'd ever had in a forum before, I probably didn't even realize I was on an online forum. I certainly wasn't a member of an online forum. And I can't speak with a great deal of confidence on why I stuck with Simply Syndicated. Now, part of it was the quality of the shows. I was listening to programs like Movies You Should See and The Definitive Word. And, you know, those two in particular, surrounded by a few others, really kind of caught my ear and caught my attention. But that was still a pretty long distance away from me saying, well, I'm going to jump online and, and use a keyboard on my computer to interactively type and communicate with strangers. But these people didn't stay strangers very long, was one thing. Now, if you listen to Inappropriate Conversations number 11, sound quality during that era, probably a little bit sketchy. I do really talk about the ethos and the rules around Simply Syndicated and their forum. And it's easy to understand from that perspective why somebody who is not a fan of flaming and doesn't view Internet interactions as some game of conquest would have stuck around. But there's more to it than that, much more. Part of it is the quality of the interactions that were there. Those quality interactions led me to 
uh, share more than I normally would have or that I ever really thought I would have online and to actually go out and meet some of these people. Some of these people now are, are friends no matter how you define the term. And over time, we've gone from online in this sort of simply syndicated forum setting, referring to ourselves somewhat jokingly as imaginary friends, to I think very willingly taking the imaginary right off that and seeing no need for that adjective anymore. And what I want to do this week and much more next week is almost come full circle a little bit and share things here that were originally shared there. It is fair to say that the inappropriate conversations idea of mixing politics, sex, religion, popular culture, you know, those sort of things, speaking freely, in other words, it didn't start with the mission statement for this show. I've been like this pretty much my whole life. It's just that when you're in a different group, when you're in a different atmosphere, you have an opportunity to communicate in different ways. And I found myself with a standard keyboard behind my own home PC able to communicate very well. I'm one of those people who would almost in some ways prefer to type a complex idea and have time to edit and read it and you know, hang on to it, save it in a draft mode, come back to it and post it than I would to you know, have you know, necessarily a face-to-face -face conversation. I think when you look at some of those personality tests that are built on the concepts of Carl Jung, I fall right in that IE line. I'm introverted or extroverted, depending on the day I take the test, the mood I'm in, the setting I'm in, whether I'm considering it from a work perspective or a home perspective or some other social group. And so really uh, can behave in a very extroverted way. I mean, this is a podcast for crying out loud, but also have a certain introverted tendency, prefer to gather my thoughts and think them through. But every now and then I'll get asked questions. And next week I will share in detail the answer to one of those questions. But first, I feel like I need to set a little bit of groundwork in terms of, well, what do I believe when it comes to, well, if somebody said, hey, why do you believe God exists? What is your logic behind your faith? And I do have an answer for that. Now, I've hit this, you know, somewhat. This concept of necessary being is not creeping out of my mouth for the very first time in this show. There have been previous inappropriate conversations for things I know, for one. Uh, chapter and verse and permanent things I believe, uh, a you know, two-part episode very early on in the first year. I've talked in some ways about some of these things, but never really to the point of kind of dealing with the philosophy, for want of a better word. And I think it's important before I go down this line of sort of citing any of these concepts that I speak a little bit about the, the key problem that I've got when I have conversations with some people and a discussion about philosophy somehow morphs into a conversation about science. And I think it's really important to make a distinction that theology isn't necessarily philosophy. Those two cannot be viewed as synonyms, and neither one of them should be viewed as science. So when someone talks about proving a philosophy, it's clear that we're not having the same conversation as one another, that you cannot go into a laboratory with a set of ingredients and some specific instructions and either prove or disprove a thought experiment. The thought experiment has to play out on its own ground. It doesn't convert into physics or convert into astrophysics or convert into bio biology or chemistry. It's philosophy, and that is where it plays, which means that you can scoff and dismiss the entire thing and say, well, then some things simply cannot be proven. But the thing, the argument that I've made in the past and that I'll make again here is that 
there will always be something that cannot be proven. When science, put quotes around the word, as I'm speaking broadly here, but when science speaks as if it has somehow answered everything, it kind of reminds me of the T-Bone Burnett song from his album, The Criminal Under My Own Hat, where uh, he has a song called I Can Explain Everything, a song that seems in some ways when you listen to it to be making fun of Rush Limbaugh. And, you know, well done for T-Bone Burnett, if that's the case. I don't think that any of us can presume to have explained everything. So when you hear people speak about the uh, Big Bang Theory and whether that, that concept proves everything we need to know about the origin of life from a cosmological perspective, I don't buy it. When we think that we can just assign a certain point in our exploration either of the universe or of the distant past of the Earth or of biological or chemical origins as being the point where it's just chaos, well, I don't think that explains everything either. I think that with smaller minds centuries ago, we would have described a lot of things that we have a really good understanding of today as chaos. And chaos has gotten smaller over those centuries because we have learned more uh, through microscopes, for, to use the easy and obvious example, things which just seem to be blobs of, you know, of nothing turn out to have a great deal of distinctiveness to them. We can see what looked like, you know, had nothing in it, you know, just clear water has microorganisms living in it. And now we can see that those microorganisms are distinct from each other, that a paramecium doesn't look like a euglena and that neither one of those looks exactly like what we would call an amoeba. And now, of course, we have microscopes that'll go much, much deeper than that. There's this notion that if you were able to magnify a view upward into space and look out far enough, you might get to the point where you can see what appears to be, well, what actually is, bodies orbiting around bodies. So stars and planets and moons and so forth and so on. But if you magnify just as deeply into you know, a single cell, or to the atomic level of that cell. And if you somehow could see that and see that in motion, in some ways, there's a similarity in terms of the relationship and, and you know, rotations and orbits, for want of a better word. So I think that the more deeply we look, either outward or inward, the more we're going to find. And I find it to be profoundly anti-intellectual on the side of those who would try to convert everything to science and dismiss any ideas they disagree with. It's profoundly anti-intellectual to turn anything into chaos and call it decided upon. But that's not the avenue I want to discuss today. I want to deal straight up with philosophy and to a certain degree deal with three main concepts. And when it comes to the notion of how does somebody with faith explain in a philosophical sense the idea of God? And to me, all of these have something to do with the idea of necessary being, which I'll get to in the different drummer segment. But first, you're talking about this, first off, straight up the idea of necessary being. God's existence is necessary for my existence. Another one is what um, you hear so often described today as intelligent design. It's really a fairly old idea, going all the way back to teleological concepts about the existence of God, and simply saying we appear to be looking at something that was created. We appear to be looking at something that is organized, even artistic, and that there appears to be quote-unquote, a mind behind it. And the other one is the cosmological argument. For me, where that rings the most interestingly, I'm not going to claim truth for any three of these because I think that these are truly philosophical theories that are still definitely under, up to debate. But this notion of origins, and what I want to share is a little bit of a conversation from a previous 
online forum. Now, this is Simply Syndicated, but of course, it's not what you're going to find today at www.simplysyndicated.com for those forums. It, this goes back two or three forums back. And the thing about me is that I'm an archivist. So these forums didn't implode. There was a, a warning, a point in time where it was clear that whatever was happening on those forums was going to be refreshed and changed and, and everything was going to be lost. It was going to start again. And armed with just enough warning time, I was able to pull things that I wanted to remember. Again, an archivist by nature. So on the, I don't know whether the topic here was religion necessarily. It was a topic that came up on more than one occasion. And I'll just sort of quote, you know, little pieces of it to sort of deal with my idea of this philosophy of originating ideas. What does it mean when Christians say that God simply has to exist? Well, there's two main thoughts I want to play with. One is this this just notion of necessary being in general, but the other is this notion of first cause. And I'll start with a comment from somebody else on the forum who was complaining that a friend of hers had said the only rational explanation for the existence of the universe is because of God. Rational? You know, fair enough if she said she thought that God created the universe, but no, she had to put the R word into it, didn't she? trying to be a peacemaker to a certain degree, but also trying to express my opinion in a deferential way. Here's what I said. I think I understand her line of reasoning based strictly on the question of origin. The way I've heard it before revolves around four basic points of view. One, the universe and everything in it is an illusion. Questions about eternity and origin are not relevant. Two, the universe itself has eternally existed. This viewpoint is not consistent with current science, or at least for the universe as we know it, current science. Three, the universe began spontaneously from nothing. While this accounts for the evidence that the universe had a starting point, it seems to be the least rational position logically. Four, something outside the universe that is most likely eternal and uncaused in itself is the cause of the universe as we know it. Now, I don't argue with people who accept either one two, three, or four, and your friend seems to support number four and has ascribed a name for it. I meet few people who actually live their lives as if number one was their conviction. That's not a surprise. If you meet somebody who tells you that they are 100% convinced that life is an illusion and that nothing is real, invite them to invite you to their bank, because you will quickly find out when they make a withdrawal <laughs> and a cashier's check in your name for everything that they quote-unquote own, you'll find out very quickly how committed they are to the idea that everything is truly an illusion. As for numbers two and three, the scientific support here is lacking at this time. The former has been contradicted by Stephen Hawking and others that we now no longer believe that the universe has eternally existed, or at least not eternally existed in, a, in this state. But we don't have a method for testing that latter idea then perhaps we never will. So when it comes to this notion that the university spun spontaneously from nothing, I don't know exactly how you prove that. You don't prove it without having a fairly imprecise definition of nothing or without relying on chaos as the X factor that excuses anything that doesn't wash out in the math. I got a good response from somebody named Sarah, and Sarah said this, I'd be interested to see your sources on that because they seem to contradict a lot of what I've read. The Big Bang Theory is pretty much taken as a given by the scientific community, in much the same way as Darwinism. It gets scrutinized fairly regularly, as in the way that scientists are. 
but there's an awful lot of evidence for its existence. Not only has the Hubble telescope mapped to the very edges of the universe, which lends quite a considerable amount of support to the theory that the universe is constantly expanding, there are also several examinations on free particles and nucleosynthesis that I wouldn't be daft enough to try to accurately express. My point is that, although it's not fully understood, the theory that the universe started from nothing is far from illogical or unfounded, nor does it necessarily disprove the existence of God. To me, one, this notion that everything's an illusion, has a lot of holes in it. This theory seems somewhat short-sighted. If all life is an illusion, then what is reality? As Descartes tells us, and summed up in his famous quote, I think, therefore I am, the fact that I believe myself to be here is proof in itself that questions of eternity and origin are relevant. Our pryings may be misdirected. As you're quite right, our universe could indeed be a lie. But there's no denying that I have a consciousness, therefore I do exist, even if the existence I believe in is a veil. Put simply, if we are all kidding ourselves and the universe is an illusion, all that does is add an extra layer to our search for meaning. It doesn't actually prove or disprove anything. I find it very hard to accept the notion that any possible creator is most likely eternal and uncaused. I see no evidence for this. Note that this call for evidence leaves, in some degree, the discussion of philosophy and begins moving into the discussion from a quote-unquote scientific perspective. But back to the point. Whilst my views on religion are perhaps wrongly very set in stone, my ideas on the existence of God are very complex and shift from day to day. I don't see myself as an atheist, nor do I see myself as agnostic. I believe that however distorted our reality may be, there is a certain alignment between things. There is incontrovertible proof that at a subatomic level, we are all one and the same mass experiencing the world in an objective manner. Our subjectivity comes from the fact that we are all ourselves particles in the universe. We can't see the forest for the trees. The forest is what we're all striving to understand. This is the closest I will ever come to accepting the existence of a deity. I certainly don't believe in a higher conscience, and I most definitely don't believe he cares about any of us. This, I'm afraid, is where it becomes hard for me to keep a straight face in front of the faithful, or the blind faithful, I should say. I have a lot of respect for believers such as yourself. You seem to be constantly questioning your views, and that to me is the only real way to live. I do not, however, think we can realistically find any peace with ourselves while we are separated into all these different factions. Saying that, and I'm well aware that I'm on record as expressing a very strong anti-religious standpoint, I believe that faith in a deity may indeed be a vital part of our psyche. Of course, this isn't proof of any kind of divine power, but it is evidence that we need a template to form our perceptions of the universe over. That is what I believe religion is for. Now I give her an answer, but it's interesting that before I do give her the answer, she's called out a couple of very interesting things which relate to necessary being. First, quoting Descartes, uh, extending the concept of necessariness to his own sort of point of view, what I would describe as an intuitive knowledge rather than a larger faith-based or God-based knowledge with, I think, therefore I am. Again, we'll get back to the concepts of Descartes and how it relates to necessary being later in the show. But the other one is, the concept of faith in deity being a vital part of our psyche connects really very directly with her reference to Descartes. What I've always maintained is that to say that God's existence is necessary for my existence is not that far off from saying I think. 
therefore I am. Here, however, is how I answered Sarah. We agree on the science. I would describe myself as a big banger. Couldn't resist the pun, sorry. I'm not terribly sympathetic with those who argue with the evidence. To me, that's unreasonable. However, I am sympathetic with those who argue with the conclusions. It seems to me that we sometimes presume too much in our conclusions when the facts only take us a certain way there. Big Bang gets us to a beginning of what we call the universe, and it quite likely forecasts an end as well. When we assign what you might call creative activity to nothing, however, to the nothing part of that equation, well, I understand why some people keep asking questions. Frankly, from a scientific perspective, I do not, and may never understand, why people who consider themselves to be scientists stop asking questions. But that may be a different question for a different day. To go back to the idea of four views and look at it from cause and effect principles, let's just do that sequentially. One, remember the idea that all life is an illusion. Well, one says that there is no cause because there is no effect. Everything's illusion. This is not my thing, but the math does work. If there is no cause, there's no effect. Two, was the idea that the universe is eternal and constant. Well, this pretty much says that the cause is the effect, because everything is a given. There is only cause. There's no effect. Three, is the idea that everything sprang into existence from nothing. Well, three is somewhat the opposite of the second one. So recall, the second one was the notion that there's no effect, there's only cause. This one is that there is an effect, but there is no cause. And what I mean by there is no cause is, that's the logic of saying that nothing is the cause of everything. Four simply states that there is an effect, and therefore there is a cause. Now, this may be too simple. I guess how we would define too simple depends entirely on who you're speaking with. But again, from a logical perspective... One of these ideas is about saying there is a cause and there is an effect. And to me, if someone wants to talk about what's rational and what's not rational, there are very few things as rational as that statement. There is an effect, therefore there is a cause. With a cause comes an effect. In fact, the second most persuasive of these four arguments for me personally is the first one. The notion that all life is an illusion says there is no cause, therefore there is no effect. The math works well on that first one. And that fourth one, the math is a little bit suspect on the middle, too. I don't like it when Christians insist that these are bad questions to ask, that studying origins is wrong, that's anti-intellectual. I also don't like it, the opposing argument that we hear, that we somehow know everything about origins, when everything clearly begs so many questions, not the least of which is what we mean by nothing and how a logically disciplined understanding of that term can do anything. In this case, create or cause. You see, I think that you know arguments three and four here are very similar and use a lot of the same evidence. Some believe that three is scientific and that four is nonsense. Well, if so, then three is inadequate science methodology that allows the limits of our technology to stop us from exploring. Just because our instruments cannot address a cause for the Big Bang does not make it wrong to look for one. We have, after all, documented the effect in ever-growing detail. I'm not so sure there is anything wrong with the last approach, unless it also tries to stop us from exploring by assigning a deity to nothing 
and stopping there. See, my problem isn't references to deity or references to nothing. My problem is anyone who assumes we know all the answers and anyone who assumes that not knowing all the answers is somehow good enough. Do you love Star Trek? How about a good scary movie? Do sexy warrior princesses haunt your dreams? Then you'll love Starbase 66, the international Star Trek horror and fantasy podcast. Join Rick, Karen, and Kennedy each week as they discuss your favorite and not-so-favorite movies and TV shows, only on the simply syndicated 21st Century Media Network. I finished that post up by saying that there are more questions to answer here, and that it's neither blasphemy nor stupidity to suggest as much. On my bad days, I'm tempted to get very dogmatic and say that it is probably blasphemy and stupidity to suggest the contrary. What you tend to see is when someone challenges the conventional wisdom that there is no need for a god, and that there's no cosmological reason to think God exists, and that anyone who says otherwise is stupid, is probably hiding behind the things not yet proven. Oh, using names for it, like nothing, or chaos, for example. And I'll grant that this notion of an uncaused first cause... That logic is just as questionable, just as suspect. And some people in the church would refer to it as blasphemy to say that God, as a personality, should be dismissed in, in these sort of philosophical terms. But to me, the real problem is to say that we've solved everything, we don't need to look further. When I don't think any of us, in our heart of hearts anyway, are satisfied with the quality of the answers that we've received. Now, you might think that a post like this on an online forum would immediately devolve into flaming. And it did not. In fact, this carried on for several more conversations, spinning away from cosmological arguments and concepts of necessary being, and in some ways marveling instead at the idea that these kind of conversations could carry on to begin with. One friend made the observation that most websites don't let this kind of argument even start for fear that it'll get out of hand. This is where Jacob Rellinger, one of our different drummers, chimed in that said he's never really had a bad experience with Christians, at least not involving their religion. Well, other than my high school principal, who didn't like me selling the band's demo tape, if I love Jesus, does that make me gay, out of my locker. I chimed in at this point once again, talking about the difficulties and trying to have open-minded conversations about religion, and kind of letting people know that you have the same problem inside the church. It's not just that secular conversations turn into some sort of holy warfare. It can happen in the Sunday school classroom just as well. I've had similar experience from an old friend at school, or in this case, in church. I ended up in a college journalism class with Brian, who went to the same church I did in elementary school. He was very shocked and offended that I had no respect and little tolerance for focus on the family and similar groups. I think his aspiration was to be journalist, quote-unquote, in the 700 Club style, sort of working for Pat Robertson. I believe my response was something like over my dead body before I'd work as a journalist in that situation. Another friend, Andy, went to the same church I went to when I was in high school. I ran into him a couple years after graduating from college, so something like a six-year gap. He was selling Amway or something similar to it and wanted to come over to catch up on old times. It turned out it was just a sales pitch. Okay, I get that. Man's got to work. The pitch was so much more than the products for the house, though. He wanted to get me back on the right path to correct the mistakes he was seeing. 
well, what were those mistakes? Allowing my wife to work, or in his mind, forcing her to work against her will. Destroying my children's future by using gasp, daycare, and preschool. And betraying my faith by still having bad things in my life, like rock music and movies made for, you know, an adult audience. He wasn't talking about anything pornographic. He was talking about standard R-rated films. He might have even been talking about PG-13 films, for all I knew. We didn't get that far into it. Possessing a copy of Jurassic Park by Steven Spielberg might have been some sign that I was you know, destined for the pits of hell. You can probably guess where that conversation went. The truth is, I'm sorry that I never saw him again. I think he needed to see more from my family. He is the one who needed a new understanding that a life of faith isn't a whitewashed existence, but one fully lived. I recently quoted uh, from Matthew 23, I believe, some of the words that Jesus shared with the Pharisees about putting on a front and being a whitewashed tomb. Yeah, Matthew 23, verse 27 is actually that passage. But then again, you know, there are Pharisees everywhere. Certainly within the Christian church today, you'll find Pharisees, but also within most other circles, political parties, at work, trade organizations, neighborhood associations, and so on. Anyone who puts a set of rules on a pedestal at the expense of people, those rules were written to serve. To serve is the exact same type of hypocrite. So I've expressed a lot of ideas so far that could be described as a cosmological argument. The idea that there is a beginning, and that a beginning had a cause, and that cause came from something outside of the universe, something that was a, an uncaused first cause, an original thing, a necessary being. And I would compare that, you know, if I look to Thomas Aquinas, for example, to the alternative idea that you do not need a first cause if what you have instead is an infinite causal regression that everything before it has a cause and everything before that has a cause going back to forever before. But I'm much more attracted to the idea myself that comes not necessarily from Aquinas, although I don't get the impression that he would have had a problem with Anselm, but with the Archbishop of Canterbury from quite some time ago, who spoke in terms of what we know today is an ontological argument, not necessarily a title that I'm a big fan of. I would prefer instead to speak simply from the logic and the concept of necessary being, which in some ways, for this conversation, is that idea of saying that there simply must be a God. There must be a being that is greater than any other being that could possibly exist. And for a being like that to be as great as can possibly be, existence would be among its characteristics. Because a being that was like that and did not exist would be inferior to a being that was like that and did exist, and that therefore this being is outside the universe, uh, outside the bounds of time and space, immeasurable from the perspective of the materialistic world that we live in, and generally gets described with terms that you hear so often you almost don't really think about what they're saying, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, those kind of concepts. But essentially, it's the idea that if God exists, he exists as a necessary being, all-powerful, always present, always good, knowing everything, eternally existing, not existing from a created perspective, but 
a first cause. This idea goes back to, you know, perhaps even thinkers before Anselm. But the interesting thing about Anselm of Aosta is how this particular thinker came into being at a time when well, it was almost like philosophy coming out of the wilderness, that there had been literally centuries, at least in the Western world, where no serious theological kind of philosophy was being performed. In fact, philosophy itself had produced nothing that would measure up to the standard that had come in the classical period of the ancient Greeks, for example. I've referred on inappropriate conversations before, specifically episode 61 on the impermanence of time, the philosopher Boethius. With Boethius, though, you're looking at somebody who's writing approximately between the years 500 and 524. So, you know, a very early, uh, early 6th century sort of philosopher and somebody who, uh, my understanding, has died for his beliefs. But between, say, 525 A.D., in the ballpark of 1100 A.D., more than 500 years goes by where there is very little philosophical thought and certainly very little philosophical thought in the realm of uh, religion that is worth even referencing, that history even bothers to remember. And one of the reasons that we have this starting point to say, hey, this concept of, of theological exploration, the philosophy of religion in particular, has come back into existence uh, because of Anselm. Anselm of Aosta would later become Anselm of Canterbury, uh, the archbishop there, and also would deal with uh, struggles and exile and perhaps even some persecution for and over his beliefs. But among the things that he did was, much like Siddhartha, from the uh, Hermann Hesse version anyway, of that story in Buddhism, defying his parents, walking away from a legacy that his family had set aside for him, Dealing with some early trauma, at least from the perspective of you know, realizing that some things that he uh, was had hoped were true about the world really weren't, had set his sights upon, you know, in this case, not the ascetic life, but had set his you know, mind upon a monastery, you know, wanting to live as a monk, wanting to commit himself to thought, and ultimately did so to such a degree that he uh, is probably the oldest in this period of philosophers, where Aquinas is surely better known, but it, Aquinas was doing a lot of his work a couple of hundred years later, built on the foundation set by Anselm. Anselm was the one who was willing to say, listen, I've got a mission to describe something that in my heart I know to be true. And that is, I first established, at least for his own satisfaction, and for the satisfaction of really a lot of monks throughout the world, that this idea that there is a being that is greater than any other being that can possibly even be imagined and that that being is God, and that to some degree, there's a necessity in that thought process. There's a necessity in imagining it, and that there is no better explanation for all it is that we see, and that all the causes and effects which science has done such a brilliant job for centuries at codifying simply are the result, maybe as deistically indifferent as a ripple effect of this God, or more the, the machinations, the brushstrokes of an artist of this God. But Anselm's concept was, I can think this. This thing is greater than anything else that can possibly be imagined. And to him, it's an I think, therefore God is sort of a parallel. Now, before anyone imagines that that's some sort of bastardization of the writings and concepts of Rene Descartes, let's remember two things. First off, Anselm predates Descartes. That's important. 
Secondly, Descartes doesn't necessarily have any fundamental disagreement with the concept of necessary being at all. He may have differences in point of view or differences in approach from Anselm, but here's a quote from Descartes' fifth meditation, reading off of Wikipedia. But if the mere fact that I can produce from my thought the idea of something that entails everything that I clearly and distinctly perceive to belong to that thing really does belong to it, is not this a possible basis for another argument to prove the existence of God? Certainly the idea of God, or a supremely perfect being, is one that I find within me just as surely as the idea of any shape or number. And my understanding that it belongs to his nature, that he always exists, is no less clear and distinct than is the case when I prove any shape or number, that some property belongs to its nature. This is the same thinker who said, I think, therefore I am. To me, Anselm may be the answer for how do you take a faith-based approach to the philosophy of religion and understand the idea of necessary being, this notion that there is a being that is necessary for all, all else that is. Descartes takes that almost down a notch to the idea of saying, hey, this applies to me as well. I prove my existence by even asking the question of do I exist? And that, of course, then can be taken down a notch to perhaps the geometric type calculations that are behind this quote that I shared from Descartes. He's thinking in terms of shapes and numbers and math and simply saying that if I can formulate those in my head and understand them as if they were real, well, then God is certainly as real as that math is real. And of course, the other thing is, how do we understand the concept of shapes to begin with, to be able to formulate math against them, but to observe them? Uh, observation, reason, intuition, and faith. These are all ways that we function inside thought experiments to prove to ourselves, if maybe not to other people, that what we know to be real is real, that what we know to be true is true. And that highest level, at least the way I order the pantheon, is this idea of necessary being. And to me, that idea comes to us from our different drummer, a man who was not born to be in a priestly family, much like Siddhartha was for Buddhism, but nevertheless felt called to lead a monk's life and to do so in a thinking manner, who made his life's work the concepts of answering questions and trying to codify a system of understanding once and for all, how do we talk about these things? How do we prove, quote-unquote, this thing called God? Whether we refer to it as an ontological argument, whether we talk about it in uh, just the names of the publications themselves, monologion, proslogion, it's enough for me to say, hey, I'm comfortable with the idea that God's existence is necessary for mine. I know that I'm not the first person to think it. I doubt seriously that Anselm was the first person to think it, and that at no point in that continuum between Anselm and Descartes has there been a sufficient disproof of that concept, because this isn't like science. You don't get to go to the laboratory, run an experiment, and you certainly don't get to go to the laboratory and realize that you don't have the raw materials you need to test this one way or the other, and therefore to declare it all to be just a bunch of nonsense. Let me go back to the point of view that I expressed years ago in that online forum. It is neither blasphemy nor stupidity to suggest that we have more questions to answer, that there are things that our scientific exploration have not covered yet. In fact, it may be some combination of blasphemy and stupidity 
to suggest the contrary and say we know everything that we need to know or that we've proved everything that we need to prove. I have to use terms like no very gently here because I do not presume that I have the answers. I don't presume that I have the knowledge that I need. I know where I stand relative to that which can be known. And I see a gap there. But the only explanation that I've got for why I'm willing to do a show, not just an episode like this, but inappropriate conversations in general, the only explanation I've got for why I was willing to speak in an online forum and interact with people who are frankly hostile to my worldview is necessary being. There is a faith that drives the exploration. There is a confidence in the case of Sir Isaac Newton that there is such a thing as gravity. It just needs to be explored and considered and to the degree possible explained. And that gap between when you feel you've got the explanation where you can go up to the board write the formula and say, there it is. And when you don't have the answer yet, is not a place for us to declare that what is not known cannot be known. We need to continue exploring. There are more questions left to answer. There's nothing blasphemous or stupid about saying so. Of course, all of this just leads to prerequisite material for a question that I was asked years ago. Where would you be without God? My first answer to that question is, wouldn't exist. God is a necessary being. His existence is necessary for my existence. If I postulate fully and seriously the notion that there is no God, there is no me to answer that question. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. I'm on Twitter at IC underscore Greg. Inappropriate Conversations has a Facebook page listed as a cause. And also the website, www.inappropriateconversations.org, has comments enabled with the show notes. Thanks for listening.